Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 6 But then something happened that made every mouth mute and every eye stare. For in the meantime, the rope dancer had begun his work. He had emerged through a small door and was walking across the rope, which had been stretched between two towers and thus hung over the market square and the people. Just as he was halfway across, the small door opened again, and a motley fellow, looking like a jester, jumped out and followed the first man with rapid steps. "'On you go, lamefoot,' he cried in a terrifying voice. "'On you go, you lazy beast, smuggler, pale face, else I shall tickle you with my heel. What are you doing here between towers? You belong in the tower.' and should be locked up. You're blocking the way for one who is better than you. And with each word he came closer and closer to him. And when he was only one step behind him, the terrible thing happened that made every mouth mute and every eye stare. He uttered a shriek like a devil and jumped over the man who was in his way. But the latter, seeing his rival win like this, lost both his head and the rope. He jettisoned his pole and shot faster than it, like a whirlwind of arms and legs down into the depths. The market square and the people resembled the sea when a storm comes in. Everything flew apart and around, and most of all at the place where the body was about to land. Zarathustra, however, stood still, and the body fell right beside him, badly injured and broken, but not yet dead. After a while, the shattered man regained consciousness and saw Zarathustra kneeling beside him. "'What are you doing here?' he said at last. "'I have long known that the devil would trip me up. Now he is dragging me off to hell. Do you want to prevent him?' "'On my honor, friend,' answered Zarathustra. "'All you are speaking of does not exist. There is no devil and no hell.' Your soul will be dead even sooner than your body, so fear nothing more. The man looked up mistrustfully. If you are speaking the truth, he said, then I lose nothing when I lose my life. I am not much more than a beast that has been taught to dance by being dealt blows and meager morsels. Not so, said Zarathustra. You have made danger your calling. There is nothing in that to despise. Now your calling has brought you down. Therefore will I bury you with my own hands. When Zarathustra had said this, the dying man answered no further, but he motioned with his hand, as if he were feeling for Zarathustra's hand to thank him. Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 7 In the meantime, evening came and the market square was shrouded in darkness. The people then dispersed, for even curiosity and horror become weary. But Zarathustra sat on the ground beside the dead man, and was immersed in his thoughts. Thus he forgot the time. But at last it became night, and a cold wind blew upon the lonely one. Then Zarathustra arose, and said to his heart, Verily, a fine catch of fish has Zarathustra brought in today, no human did he catch, but rather a mere corpse. Strange indeed is human existence, and still without meaning. 
a gesture can become its fatality. I want to teach humans the meaning of their being. That is the overhuman, the lightning from the dark cloud of the human. But still am I distant from them, and my sense does not speak to their senses. A mean am I still for humans, between a fool and a corpse. Dark is the night, dark are the paths of Zarathustra. Come, you cold and stiff companion. I shall carry you to where I can bury you with my own hands. Hey everyone, and welcome to sections 6 and 7 of Zarathustra's prologue. We finally made it through the quite dense sections of the prologue, 3, 4, and 5, where Zarathustra presents the high-level conception of what the overhuman is, and the types of humans that nowadays could lead to an overhuman type being, the types of characteristics that are in accordance with evolutionary development in that direction as Nietzsche conceives it as the development of will to power in an ascending direction. In section 5, Nietzsche and Zarathustra present the alternative choice uh, to humans who push themselves farther, the last human, which is a human that doesn't really try too hard, sort of relaxes because society allows them to, uh, the protections of society allow them to, and leads through time to the lower type of human, the last human. Um, and again, based on Nietzsche's conception of evolution as it pertains to will to power and the development of the will to power, he sees both of these as being possible. And section six is very, very important when we're reading Nietzsche for getting an understanding of how Nietzsche thinks about the development of will to power and the higher and lower types of humans. And it foreshadows some, some discussion that Nietzsche has later on in the book about the necessity and desirability of having the last type of humans and not just focusing on the great humans. So while Nietzsche does very much focus in this book on the great type of human and what it takes to become that type of person and what that type of person is like, and while it's very easy to read into Nietzsche a total disdain for the lower type of human, he does believe that the lower type of human is an absolute necessity to the further development of mankind as a whole and section 6 is incredibly important, along with some other stuff in the book, but section 6 in particular, just even the structure of it and introducing some of the ideas, shows how important this lower type of person is. And it also goes a long way to dissuade the careful reader of Nietzsche that Nietzsche himself does not condone any sort of mass genocide against undesirable types of people. Uh, there is an issue sometimes when you bring up Nietzsche as an intellectual source that people associate him with the atrocities that happened in Nazi Germany in the Third Reich, where some Nazi intellectuals did use Nietzschean ideas as a justification for some of the genocidal activities that went, that went on. Uh, obviously, if you know things about German history, the top-level Nazi ideologues believe that the Germans were the most superior race on earth, that the Jews needed to be exterminated, the gypsies needed to be exterminated, that uh, homosexuals, uh, disabled people needed to be exterminated. And a lot of Nietzschean ideas, if you take them very simply, sort of lead to a justification of that, where you can say, okay, well, there is no God, there is no absolute right and wrong, therefore mass murder is fine, and therefore we can get rid of undesirable types. Uh, that's based on a very ignorant and simple view of reading Nietzsche, and while many 
Nietzsche scholars do say that, you know, people read Nazi ideology into Nietzsche and that's incorrect. I haven't really found any academic sources or any other scholars of Nietzsche that have pointed out why that's wrong. All they say is merely, oh, well, if you read Nietzsche carefully, you can tell that he doesn't actually mean that, but they don't really point out where he sort of takes away that idea. And I think that it happens amongst other places, specifically in the Will to Power notebooks. It happens right here in section 6, which is very, very important from a structural perspective. It sort of shows, okay, in sections 3 through 5, Nietzsche presents the overhuman, Nietzsche presents the last human, and there's the ascendancy in evolution and the descendancy in evolution. And obviously he prefers the good type of human being. But right after that is section 6, and this is where he sort of lays out why, even though there is a discrepancy between higher and lower, the lower shouldn't be wiped out. Uh, so even structurally, right after introducing several key ideas about development in sections 3 through 5, he immediately says, but don't go around killing everyone who's lower. Uh, and that's very, very important. So let's get into this section. Again, that's the main thing I want to focus on here, and it's really the main idea. There's not too much else in sections 6 and 7. And then once we get through that, we can sort of blow through most of the rest of the prologue and get into the actual book. So, section 6. The rope dancer, the tightrope walker, begins his performance, and it's an allegory, going back to what Nietzsche said in section 4, about human life and human development. Nietzsche says in section 4, The human is a rope, fastened between beast and overhuman, a rope over an abyss, a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and standing still. What is great in the human is that it is a bridge and not a goal. What can be loved in the human is that it is a going over and a going under. So in section 6, when Nietzsche presents this tightrope walker, performing his dangerous duty going across this rope, uh, he then presents this character of the jester coming out of the first tower, sneaking up on the tightrope walker, calling him names, denigrating him, insulting him, sort of putting the tightrope walker below him. So you can already sort of see this jester thinks that he's He's a higher type of evolutionary being than the tightrope walker. So he might think that he's more overhuman-like than the tightrope walker because he's going faster and he can jump over the guy. And when he does jump over the guy, the tightrope walker falls to his death. So it's very important to see here that the name of the character who's overleaping the tightrope walker is the jester. Now this, is a, this word, jester, only comes up about four times in this entire book, and really only meaningfully twice. So the first instance is here, where the jester comes out and jumps over the guy, causing him to fall to his death. And the next suggestion of him, the next uh, important suggestion of him, comes up in the third book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, in section 12, which is on old and new tablets. This section is a very, very long, I think it's about 30 subsections. It's a very long chapter that is essentially, it can be seen as a very condensed summary of the entire book itself. And in subsection 4, Zarathustra says, Behold, here is a new tablet, but where are my brothers who will carry it with me down to the valley and into hearts of flesh? Thus my great love of the farthest demands it. Do not spare your neighbor. 
the human is something that must be overcome. There are many different paths and ways of overcoming. Look you to them. But only a jester thinks. The human can also be overjumped. Overcome yourself even in your neighbor, and a right that you can seize for yourself you should not let yourself be given. So really, in the whole book, there's only two mentions of this jester character that are important for our consideration. In section six, and then later on in that section about overcoming. And so you can see from what Nietzsche wrote in on old and new tablets that he fundamentally thinks that this jester personality, and he picks the word jester pretty carefully. In other translations, I've seen it written as buffoon. This type of character, the one who overleaps the tightrope walker, the one who thinks the thought that humans can also be overjumped, is a fundamentally unserious character. He's someone who hasn't thought through what actually needs to happen. It's sort of a pale imitation of what real philosophy would suggest. So the fact that this jester character is the one living out this philosophy and espousing this philosophy that someone who's lower, someone who's weaker can be overjumped, Nietzsche, right in this section, right after he's introduced the concept of overhuman and last human, Nietzsche right away says, okay, don't misinterpret what I've written about overhuman and last human and their relative value because it's crazy to think that humanity can be pushed forward as a whole by skipping steps, by cutting out the lower forms of human, by getting rid of them. He's saying only a jester, only a buffoon, only an idiot would think that, and only an idiot would behave that way. So if you think about it, that according to Nietzschean philosophy, according to and not just Nietzschean philosophy, but the way that he believes that the world, that reality, that everything plays itself out, that it's stupid to get rid of a massive chunk of humanity. He thinks that everyone is necessary to push humanity forward. There's a couple different ways of thinking about this. Uh, one that I like to do and to use an analogy that we've used previously is that if you're trying to do anything well, if you're trying to develop a skill, and being a great human being requires a variety of highly developed skills. You, as an individual, can't skip any steps in your development. So if you're trying to become an excellent mathematician, there's no way you can skip algebra and go straight to calculus. There's no way you can skip grade 4 math and then do grade 8 math. You need every step in the development to enable and allow further steps in development. It's like saying that you can bypass learning how to dribble before you can become a great basketball player. You need to learn all the basic skills and you need to learn them well as the basis upon which higher skills can then be developed. Uh, so in math, you just couldn't do trigonometry if you didn't take earlier classes in shapes and angles and stuff like that. And similar with humanity, you can't create large-scale developments of ever-increased complexity and development without a strong base upon which to create those. So not just in the individual sense of needing sh classes and shapes and angles to go into more complex trigonometry and calculus, 
within human societies, you need a broad base of people and skills to develop higher forms of human activity on those. So even if you just take a, an anthropological survey of human development and the millennia and centuries that we spent as hunter-gatherers, where small tribes of humans spent the greater part of their time and energy simply procuring food, fending off dangerous animals, fending off other tribes, uh, everyone's resources were devoted to gathering food and defense. Uh, it was only with the advent of agriculture, cities, walled cities, uh, where less time had to be spent on defense and food production, and more areas of specialization opened up for human society. So with cities and with growing wheat, you enable baking to exist. So baking, even though it seems fairly simple to us, compared to what was possible for uh, tribal societies, baking is actually a phenomenally complex thing that is quite the achievement. Uh, same thing with the production of metals and smelting, uh, the first sort of forays into scientific production that happened through the Bronze Age, the, the Iron Age, all that sort of stuff. The vast amounts of infrastructure and specialization of labor that are required to do that necessarily require a strong base of economy and socialization and having a strong enough society that is stable enough to allow people to devote their time to producing those things. Quite simply, it wouldn't be possible if everyone needed to worry about the barbarians from over the hill or getting the next meal or everything like that. But because human society develops and the different types of people evolve from the simple, relatively simple categories that exist in a hunter-gatherer society from what, the hunter type of human, the gatherer type of human, the leader type of human, the witch doctor or shaman type of person, where in those primitive societies there's, you know, like five or six different subgroups. I'm sure some anthropologist is going to correct me and say, oh, well, you know, it really ranged from 8 to 12 and you're missing the sort of grub forager, I don't know. But relatively few groups of different types of humans and different types of skills that are developed within those communities to modern society where there are doctors, there are biologists, there are genomicists, there are physicists, there are thousands upon thousands of different areas of human activity that are only possible because of the stability and hard work that went into creating a society where there's enough money, there's enough leisure time, there's enough security and safety to allow those things to flourish. And so to return to Nietzsche here, where he's saying, you know, guys, it's stupid, only a jester thinks that the human can be jumped over, He's really saying both individually, in terms of learning any sort of new skill or becoming any type of person, you shouldn't skip steps. Or on a societal level, you need every type of human being to be applying themselves uh, in a concerted effort to become better to really allow this overhuman type of person to live. Only the jester thinks the human can be jumped over. Nietzsche thinks, no, that's stupid. Obviously, only a jester, a joker, a buffoon would think that. That in every aspect of human development, every step, every type of human, every level of development is required for the next level of development to 
to use that as a basis upon which it can then grow. And so even many of our colloquial, colloquial sayings rely on this notion. So when you look at the great scientists, a lot of the time they'll say, oh yeah, you know, I, even though I did this great accomplishment, I came up with this theory, it's really minuscule. I was standing on the shoulders of giants. That standing on the shoulders of giants, that's really, Nietzsche would interpret that as, yes, that's perfect. That's, that's an example of my philosophy where even though Sir Isaac Newton was a wonderful, like, awesome person who came up with a bunch of great ideas about science and Newtonian physics, and he was only possible because of where English society had gotten, where the state of science had gotten up to that point in time, uh, many people who came after him relied upon his discoveries and the extent to which he pushed the envelope in the field of physics to then further develop physics. And so there's this idea that absolutely every step, even if it's wrong or even if it's uh, paltry or even if it's lower in an evolutionary sense, it's absolutely required for the development of humanity. And so that's why I think in section six, with this idea, with this allegory of the jester jumping over the tightrope walker and how Zarathustra then comforts the tightrope walker and takes him on as a friend and a companion and decides to bury him with his own hands. This is really where I see Nietzsche making a very strong argument against genocide, against uh, all the things that went wrong with his bastardized philosophy in Third Reich Germany. And so again, like it's not very clearly written here. It's not like Zarathustra said, hey, come on guys, don't go around killing each other. But it is here nonetheless in section 6. It's right after he introduced the notion of the higher man and the lower man. And it's as if he knew, okay, once I present this thing, and even though I'm going to talk about the higher man and how much better he is, I don't want people misinterpreting what I'm saying. So I'm going to put, right after I introduce those two things, a big warning against misinterpreting and going on a big killing spree because you're essentially cutting off a lot of the human human organism that is needed for the further development of humanity as a whole. So that's the big idea of section six. Um, I hope you guys understand that it is very important. It's not very clear when you're reading Nietzsche why he doesn't support it, but I think that here it's fairly well laid out. So the last thing that I want to talk about in section six is Zarathustra's small conversation with the tightrope walker after he's fallen to the ground. And so the tightrope walker, essentially he falls to the ground and he looks up at Zarathustra and says, What are you doing here? I've long known that the devil would trip me up. Now he's dragging me off to hell. Do you want to prevent him? On my honor, friend, answered Zarathustra, all you are speaking of does not exist. There is no devil and no hell. Your soul will be dead even sooner than your body, so fear nothing more. So here it's a fairly quick knock that Zarathustra takes against the old Christian idea of a heaven and an immortal soul. Zarathustra very much sees those things as being ridiculous. And he says, your soul is going to be dead sooner than your body. That sort of mental aspect of sense of self that you think you are, it's not an immortal thing. Even though, as the Platonists might say, and maybe the more enlightened Christians might say, that since you are an aspect of reality being conscious of itself and since none of you can be destroyed if you are the universe, nothing can ever leave the universe, 
since you are the universe looking at itself, and since the universe can't be destroyed, you will in some form always exist, and therefore, in a weird way, you do have an immortal soul. Nietzsche is saying, yeah, guys, that's true, but let's not be pedantic about this. Like, you're, that doesn't mean anything for you going to heaven and chilling on a cloud with some old man wearing a beard and Jesus doing, having parties and saying hello to people. There's no such thing, even though you are part of the universe, and Nietzsche does very much think that. There, there's no devil, there's no hell, there's no immortal soul. It's just going to be nothing. It's just going to be blank. And so after Zarathustra sort of knocks away that sort of facile Christian superstition, the man looks up mistrustfully and says, If you are speaking the truth, then I lose nothing when I lose my life. I'm not much more than a beast that has been taught to dance by being dealt blows and meager morsels. And so it's interesting, this, this statement is sort of one that a nihilistic person would make. Uh, when, when people realize that there is no fundamental meaning to anything, that there is no God, uh, that anything's permitted, that's the famous Dostoevsky line, that if there is no God, everything's permitted. Uh, and so he's saying here, if, you know, when I lose my life, if there is no heaven, there is no God, like if everything's just blank, then I'm not losing anything, and I'm nothing more than just some sort of animal that's been taught to do interesting things by being sort of hit and being fed, sort of an interesting crude uh, conditioning program. And so you can sort of realize that, you know, most animals are taught that way. So you want a horse to behave, you got to break the horse, you got to hit it uh, when it's misbehaving, you got to reward it when it's behaving well. Same thing with raising a dog. If a dog goes to the washroom in your house, you got to reprimand it. Uh, if it does something good, you give it a treat. So you're, you're teaching it uh, to dance, quote-unquote. You're teaching it to do interesting things by reprimanding and by feeding it. And so this guy, he sort of, after Zarathustra knocks the Christianity out of him, so to speak, he, he immediately goes to the nihilistic spot and says, well, you know, the, my life isn't anything special. I'm just another type of animal that's been taught to do interesting things, and there's no meaning in that. And Nietzsche and Zarathustra comes back. And this is an interesting thing that uh, we're going to be learning a lot about in this book. And if you read The Gay Science, the book that immediately preceded this book, there's a couple sections in there that specifically that specifically relate to this idea, and it comes up in Nietzsche a lot, uh, where Zarathustra here says, no, 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 not so. Don't think that you're just a beast that's been taught to do interesting things by being beaten and fed little treats. You've made danger your calling. There's nothing in that to despise. Now your calling has brought you down. Therefore will I bury you with my own hands. He's saying, essentially, no, don't think of it that way. Just because God is dead and just because there is no meaning to your life doesn't mean that you're just some random beast being taught to do interesting things. Let's reinterpret this situation. And reinterpretation for Nietzsche and interpreting the events of life in the correct way is a very, very important thing for Nietzsche. So he says here, even though he's saying one thing, what he's really saying to the guy is, don't, don't think nihilistically. Don't think just because there is no God that your life had no meaning and that you're just sort of another animal doing something superficially interesting. You may danger your calling. And danger for Nietzsche and danger for <clears throat> living dangerously according to will to power and trying to evolve upwards or whatever. For Nietzsche, that's a very important thing. 
And so in our lives, whenever we're doing something that we don't immediately understand the purpose of, or it's hard or annoying or just not a pleasant experience, it's very easy if you're nihilistic to say, what the hell's the point of all this? Like, I'm just doing all this random suffering for no reason. There is no God. There is no meaning to life. So why am I going through with this stuff? And one of Nietzsche's key insights is to reinterpret your suffering, reinterpret what you're doing so that it actually has more meaning for you. And as we're going to see throughout this book, just because God is dead doesn't mean there's no meaning to the universe. And as Nietzsche said before in section three, the overhuman is the meaning of the earth, the development of humanity and the development of ourselves into more interesting versions of who we are is the meaning of the earth. And we should interpret things that way. So when we're doing something difficult or we're doing something that requires a lot of suffering, it's it's not empowering to think about things as just being meaningless. It's much more empowering to say, hey, I'm going through this difficult time where, you know, I, I'm having to use all these skills I don't have. I don't know how to do this. It's much more interesting to say, hey, look, I'm being given the opportunity to do something hard here that's requiring me to develop new skills become a more multifaceted human being and there's nothing to despise in that that it's actually quite a noble thing to challenge ourselves and to put ourselves through those tests because at the end of the day we become more multifaceted complex interesting human beings and so th that section there where Zarathustra is sort of not really explaining that to the guy but essentially using his philosophy to help the dying man reinterpret his existence, uh, that's a very important aspect of Nietzsche, and it's one that we're going to come across a lot. So that's it for section six of the prologue. Section seven is a fairly short section. Uh, there's not a lot to it. Zarathustra is essentially just sitting with the guy after he's died. He talks a bit to himself. He reiterates that strange indeed is human existence and still without meaning. A jester can become its fatality. I want to teach humans the meaning of their being. That is the overhuman, the lightning from the dark cloud of the human. But still am I distant from them, and my sense does not speak to their senses. A mean am I still for humans, between a fool and a corpse. So he's just sort of recapitulating things that he's that we've come across before in this prologue that, you know, human existence is still without meaning, but here I am to try and bring it to these people. The meaning of their existence wasn't God, it wasn't having a good time. It was the overhuman that self-development and the development of humanity is the meaning of Earth, that a jester, a buffoon, can still be the end of it, and that Zarathustra's logic still doesn't make sense to the crowd, and he's still very distant from these people. So he just sort of recapitulates his position. He gives you a summation of sort of where he's at after coming to the first town and speaking to human beings for the first time in a long time. So that's it for sections six and seven. Again, very important for understanding that Nietzsche isn't calling for the destruction of everyone who's lower and for only the few very best people to survive because that just doesn't make any sense. So thanks again for joining. That was section six and section seven. Uh, we'll get into the rest of the prologue in the next few audio lectures and hopefully blow through those. Again, uh, there's not too much more serious philosophy going on in the next ones. And then very soon, I am happy, and I'm sure you guys are happy, that we will be getting into the actual book itself. All right, thanks for joining, everyone.
Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.